Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. Well, it's great to be with you. My name is Dan, and wherever you're tuning into this, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not, a believer or a doubter, I hope that you'll be encouraged to explore this idea of questioning Christianity. Because let me make a confession. I haven't always been a Christian. I may have grown up with religious parents. My mom and dad took me to church. They believed in God. They taught me about Jesus. And probably the understanding of Christianity that I had as a youngster was something like this, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But then that life happens. And for me, I was just nine when we were on a family ha- a car holiday, driving down to Melbourne and then back to Brisbane where we live, where in thick fog in the New South Wales Blue Mountains, we hit the back of a truck. And that accident left my mum with serious head injuries. She was airlifted to hospital. They removed a third of her skull so that she wouldn't die from intracranial pressure. And the surgeon said to my dad in the aftermath of that surgery that she's going to be forever changed. This was serious brain injuries. You see, that experience by that roadside, that torpedoed my childlike belief in God. The idea that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, that he's all loving and all powerful, yet wouldn't stop this kind of pain and suffering, that just didn't compute for me as a youngster. And so for most of my childhood and teenage years, I really kept God at arm's length, ignored the God question altogether. And it wasn't until I really came back to finishing high school, starting to explore big questions in life like, who do I want to be? What am I going to live for? What makes us happy? What is it that when I get to the end of my life, lie on my deathbed and look back, what makes for a meaningful life? It was these sorts of questions that got me open again to exploring the God question. And had a mate who said, why don't you read the Bible? And in answer to your big question, see whether or not God has anything to say. And for some strange reason, me as a 17-year-old, I took up his challenge. I read the Bible from cover to cover in just a few months. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but I found the Bible incredibly confusing. Almost none of it made sense. Who's happening to what and where and why? It was just a mystery. Until I finally made it to the stories about Jesus, what Christians call the Gospels, these biographies from some of Jesus' closest friends. Because it was there that I encountered this towering figure known as Jesus of Nazareth and realized that not only did he open himself up to taking my hard questions in the different stories that are told in the Gospels. But actually, he asked a whole lot of difficult questions for me as well. And that experience of reading about Jesus' answers, how the Christian story connects to life's deepest questions, that really made me open again to the idea of God and then the experience of God drew me back into Christian faith. But you know what? After 15 years now of being a Christian, I haven't stopped asking my hard questions of God. I've spent most of my academic career, a few degrees now in theology and philosophy studies, really exploring whether or not the Christian faith stands up to scrutiny and whether or not God is really open to us asking our hard questions. And what I wanted to share in this message entitled Questioning Christianity is just a few of the reasons why I'm so encouraged by what I found in my search. A few of the reasons why I still consider Jesus worth believing in, despite all of the hard questions and objections and struggles that we have in life. So you ready? Well, let's dive in. The first thing that I found when I was exploring the Christian story is that Jesus welcomes doubters. 
Now, I was of the opinion that doubt wasn't really allowed when it comes to Christianity, that if you're a Christian, you have to hang up your brain at the door. You're not allowed to express any uncertainty when it comes to God. And for a lot of Christians, particularly people I've spoke to since changing and joining Team Jesus, well, a lot of them have expressed these similar kinds of feelings. That to have doubts is almost to be treated like a leper in any religious community. That you're not free to question God or Jesus or the Bible or even your pastor. And therefore, doubts must be suppressed or pushed down. And what this leads to is the impression that faith is at odds with facts. That revelation is at odds with reason. That science is at odds with God. And really, you have to choose between these different kinds of options. But that is a false choice for anyone who takes the Bible seriously. Because as soon as you begin to read the various stories in the Bible, you'll find that there are a ton of hard questions asked by the so-called heroes of the Bible when it comes to their relationship with God. And the Bible makes no attempt to dull the raw and deep place from which the register of emotion these questions ultimately are raised. Take the book of Psalms, for instance, the songbook of Israel in the Old Testament. There in Psalm 10.1, you'll find King David, an amazing man yet with a fails history, but yet a soft heart for God. He opens up with a question that I found myself asking at different points, even of my own Christian life. And it's this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Maybe that's a question you found yourself asking. And this isn't some isolated incident either. Go through and read Jeremiah or Jonah or Job. All of these men in the Old Testament ask incredibly hard questions of God from a place of frustration, of dark nights of the soul, of deep disappointment with their life not playing out as they thought it ultimately should. It's fair to say that doubt is actually a mega theme of the Bible when it comes to the journey towards faith. And when you jump into the New Testament, nothing changes. Just reading through the gospel stories, I was amazed at how open people are with their doubts and how gentle Jesus is with his response. Take in the account of Matthew, straight after the resurrection of Jesus. His friends have seen him for 40 days and 40 nights now. He met with them, he entertained their doubts, he answered their questions, he ate with them, he hugged them. And then after 40 days of being with them, he's saying goodbye. And they're gathering them all together on a mountain with Jesus right in front of him. It said of his closest friends in Matthew 28 verse 17, that there they were with him, and some worshipped, and some doubted. (laughs) They're doubting in the very presence of the physical resurrected Jesus. They still have their doubts, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them for it. Or take John's gospel. Again, after Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, some of Jesus' closest followers, the remaining 11 disciples, they gathered together in a locked upper room. Except for Thomas, who must have been out at the time, maybe getting unleavened pizza or something, I don't know. But while Thomas was out, the other friends of Jesus were there. The resurrected Jesus comes and appears before them. And he shows them the scar prints in his hands and his feet. And he extends them, peace be with you. And he lets them touch him and he eats with them. He shows them that he isn't some hallucination or apparition, that he really is flesh and blood. He is Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then he disappears. And Thomas comes back with the pizza. 
And they say, Thomas, you will not believe it, but we saw Jesus alive. The women were right. The empty tomb is because Jesus has risen from the dead. Now we can believe that all things are beginning to be made new. And, and what's Thomas's reaction? Well, he was the first David Hume, the ancient empiricist, the I will not believe it unless I can touch it with my own hands or see it with my own eyes. And there is this little oft phrase that people don't pay much attention to where it says a full week later, Jesus appears to them again. What does that mean? Well, it means for an entire week, Jesus was happy for one of his 11 apostles, one of the most significant church leaders that would come after him. He was happy to leave him to wrestle with his doubts for an entire week before then rushing in to be able to give him the evidence that he needed to convince him of his resurrection from the dead. Jesus seems to be way more comfortable with doubt and doubters than the modern church has become. And this to me is a great encouragement that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but that doubt is an opportunity. Perhaps even doubt is a doorway to a deeper faith if we know when and how to address those doubts. Back in 1991, there was this crack team of scientists that did a experiment out of the University of Utah. Now, what they set up were these artificial domes, terrariums, these uh, sort of atmospheres that were separated from Earth's atmosphere, but designed to be able to test the viability of maintaining life in space, where we did colonize Mars or the moon. And so in each one of these domes, they set up a different kind of uh, atmosphere for what we'd experience here, a different kind of ecosystem. So there was a savanna and there was a rainforest system or there was a desert area and they would put in plants and animals that fit those different kind of ecosystems. And then they did two years of a lock-in, completely separated from any of the resources of Earth to see what would happen. Now, at the end of that two years, they noticed that a number of the tree species in particularly the savanna and the rainforest sections didn't grow up to be as tall as the same species of tree outside of the biospheres. And they began to wonder why until they realized that they forgot to mimic a really important atmospheric condition, wind. Because in the process of wind blowing against small saplings, it does to their fibers the same thing that muscle workouts do at the gym for guys and girls. It puts micro tears in those fibers that enable it to grow back even stronger than it was before. That the resistance of the wind, the temptation, the doubt, the pushback, the objection is actually what causes the strengthening of the tree so that it can grow up to be tall and strong and give shade and life to the animals around it. Now, the same I think is true of the function of doubt in the development of deeper faith. If you come to a point where you've got a question, an uncertainty, a doubt, the right response is not to bury it, but actually to investigate it, to see whether or not that source of that doubt is reliable, to see whether or not that doubt has been meaningfully answered. And if, let's say I didn't trust my wife for one reason or another, and all of a sudden I went to investigate whether or not her story stacked up, well, if her story, her character, her fidelity stacked up again and again and again and again, well, that is phenomenal reason to question the doubt in the first place. I walk through the doorway of that doubt into a deeper faith than I had before because it's given me a stronger understanding of the foundation of faith that lies behind it. I can trust in a deeper way now. And I think that's the place that doubt is meant to play in the Christian life. So that's the first thing, that Jesus welcomes doubters. But the second thing I discovered is that faith has its reasons. 
A ton of people are under the impression that you just have to believe blindly, that religious faith is like a blind leap into the dark. It's belief in the absence of evidence. These are popular definitions you'll find amongst the new atheists and internet forums that are out there. But that is an alien definition of what faith is, particularly when it comes to the Bible. The Bible and New Testament Greek and the original language in which all of the stories about Jesus and his first followers were written, there are two Greek words that they could have used to describe faith or belief or trust. The first of these terms is a Greek term, nemitso, which means to believe on the basis of custom or tradition. In other words, your parents told you to believe it, your school teacher told you to believe it, some person or authority told you to believe it, and you just blindly accept by tradition what it is that they tell you. That's nemitso, to believe on the basis of custom or tradition. The second term is pastua, which is to believe on the basis of the credibility of the claim itself. Either it comes from someone who should know they've got the available evidence and the capacity to investigate it, or it comes from you actually investigating it yourself and becoming convinced as a first-hand testimony. That's the concept of pastuo, to believe on the basis of the credibility of the claims itself. Now, any guess which of these two terms the New Testament exclusively encourages when it comes to belief in Jesus? I'll give you a hint. It's not nemitso. Absolutely, 100% of the time, it is pastuo, which is why when it comes to something like John 20, 31, the end of John's gospel, where one of Jesus' first followers laid out his case for Christ, all of the claims that Jesus made about his identity, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the great I am, the voice of the burning bush. I am God made human. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. All of these big identity claims in John's gospel then backed up by these seven signs, these miracles that Jesus performs to give him the supernatural credentials that he claimed to have, whether it's walking on water or multiplying food or having power over the elements or even being able to be resurrected from the dead. Having laid out this case for Christ, now the Apostle John goes on to say, these things I have written so that you, the reader, may believe, pastuo, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. It's faith on the basis of the established evidence. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 in the New Testament, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. In other words, there are two preconditions if you're able to have the kind of faith that pleases God. First, you must believe that he exists. You must be convinced that there are good reasons to believe that God exists, that he's not just a figment of our imagination like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Hope I'm not bursting any bubbles there. And you also must believe that God is the kind of character that is worth leaning into, that he's the kind of person you would want to pursue, that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. And so that God exists and that God is worth pursuing. These are the two things that are preconditions to any kind of meaningful biblical faith. So what is the definition of faith when it comes to the Bible? Well, it's not believing in the absence of evidence. It's not a blind leap in the dark. According to the biblical vision of what faith is, faith is the right response to the revelation of God. It's learning to trust what you know to be true about God for what you cannot yet see. 
We could actually say that rather than being a blind leap in the dark, it is a step into the light, following the evidence to where it ultimately points. Faith has its reasons, which introduces an entire sub-discipline of which you may be entirely unaware of if you're new to the Christian story or even a seasoned Christian called apologetics. Now, apologetics is not about going around saying that you're sorry for being a Christian. Apologetics comes from a Greek term, apologia, and it means to be able to defend or commend the Christian faith. And it's a word that's lifted straight out of the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, it says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, let me pull apart this verse to point out a couple of things. If you're a Christian and you want to take your faith in Jesus public, well, it's saying that taking Jesus public actually begins with making Jesus the center. Set apart Christ as Lord. And then it says, if you want to take your faith public, well, then you should be living a questionable life. Notice it doesn't say start yelling about Jesus to everyone on every street corner. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to who? to everyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have. In other words, you're living a life that provokes questions. That the way that you go about following and believing in Jesus, to love God and love others, that the way that you live out the way of Jesus actually provokes questions. Now, why are you different? In a world that is pessimistic, what is this hope that fuels you? Why are you so able to care about people and love people rather than just care about yourself? What is it that drives you with that outward vision? And it is this deep faith in Jesus, this centering around the gospel story, being changed and loved by him that then leads to us living questionable lives. But notice then it says, okay, you've centered your life on Jesus. You live a questionable life of good works and of love. But that then raises questions and a God conversation ensues. They ask you, what are the reasons for the hope that you have? You are encouraged here to be ready to give an answer, or your translation might say make a defense. Behind that is a Greek word, apologia, apologetics. And apologetics, if I was to summarize what it means, apologetics is the art of commending and defending the gospel like Jesus. Commending because it's given positive reasons why this is good news and true news. And defending because people have all kinds of misconceptions and objections, like what I did as a youngster when it comes to making sense of how God and the Christian story makes sense of life's deepest questions. So commending and defending the front foot and the back foot, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, but in a way that is like Jesus. And notice here in 1 Peter, it said, but do this with gentleness and respect. That you can have true things to say, but say them in a way that actually closes people's ears and hearts to be able to hear it. You see, Christian truth must always be shared with a Christian tone of gentleness and respect, dignifying the questioner behind the question, because that's always been the way of Jesus that drew me in as he gave reasons for the hope that we have. And what I love about this world of apologetics is that as soon as you step into it, you'll discover that there are a myriad of arguments and evidences as to why you can believe that this is true. Not just believing the what of the Christian story, but knowing your why. Why do I believe this in a secular and a skeptical age? Why do I believe in Jesus when there are so many other spiritual or non-spiritual options? 
What are my reasons for holding on to this hope that I have in Jesus? And I'd encourage you in the myriad of evidences, whether it's the existence of God or the truth of Jesus, to go out and investigate that there are real substantial evidences and arguments that are compiled from philosophy and history and science and human experience that together build a strong cumulative case that point to the truth of the Christian story. And and given that people in our world now, they want facts, they want evidence, they want reasons. Over half of those uh, surveyed in Australia that marked down, why do you not believe in God or sign up to some religious belief? It's because they say they prefer science or evidence-based approaches to belief. Given that that's our context, it's important for us to be able to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. Now, just as an aside, if you're a Christian and watching this, your reasons don't have to be the same as that of a professional philosopher or a professional historian or a professional sociologist. I'm not asking you to go and learn complex argumentation. I'm just asking you to think about if you are a believer in God and a follower of Jesus, why is it that amidst all of the doubts and all of the onslaught of objections of our modern age, what is it that really animates your hope? What is it that helps you hold on through those dark nights of the soul? What are your individual reasons for belief. It could be an argument. It could be an experience. But know your why if you're ever going to be able to endure the kind of challenges that come. And if you're not a Christian and you're still exploring Christian faith, I want you to know that you are invited to ask away all of your hard questions of the Christian story because truth invites questioning. The more and more you look into the Christian story and investigate the case of belief in God and belief in Jesus, the more you should emerge with a growing sense of conviction that, hey, maybe this is really true. Which is where this leads to my third point for today and why you should want it to be true. And it's this, that Jesus is good news. Jesus is good news. We live in a world right now that is baptized in bad news. You can't escape it. It's on every channel. It's on social media platforms. It comes and bombards us every day. Everything that's wrong with the world. And there is this deep innate sense that something is wrong. But yet Jesus comes to offer good news. In fact, he said of himself that there is another, a thief, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and have life to the full. Jesus actually wants to restore you and me to the full life for which we were created, a life in relationship with God, knowing our purpose and living out the way of love that's best reflected in the life of Jesus and contributing something good to the world with our unique gifts. This is the life for which we were made by God, to know Him, to love each other, and to carefully contribute something good to this world. And yet, in the vacuum of answers to life's deepest questions, If I didn't have the Christian story to be able to guide me, well, I think that raises some really difficult questions as to whether or not we can make sense of who we are and why we're here and how we should live. It's why young people today struggle so much with knowing questions of identity and meaning and purpose and value and significance and how to handle suffering in their lives because there are for them no answers to life's deepest questions. It was the famed Viktor Frankl, one of the survivors of the camps at Auschwitz and um, Buchenau, in his reflections as a secular person, as a psychologist looking on our culture, he said, 
you know, people have enough to live by, but nothing to live for. And when he was back reflecting on the terrible mental health outcomes of the death, Nazi death camps, he said, those people who knew their why were able to endure almost any how. That the people who believed in something beyond themselves, in a God or big spiritual type reality, in a purpose for their existence, they were able to endure the suffering and the struggle and the darkness of those death camps in a way that their secular neighbors simply couldn't. And when it comes to life's deepest questions, the things that all of us have to be able to answer to navigate reality, Jesus actually offers really good news. That there is no sphere of human life over which the Christian story is not good news. And that the Christian story is something that we need to feed on in order to grab onto that good news. Let me give you, if you're new to the Christian story, maybe just a little bit of a contrast by way of a window here. When it comes to the question of identity, who am I? What's my value? This is something that the Christian and the secular story answers in two very different ways. If you go and look at popular science writers who are secular in their thinking, atheists or agnostics, what they'll tell you is that you are effectively a cosmic accident. You are just stardust that has happened to be animated by a force of life which we don't really understand, but that there is no meaning to your existence, there is no purpose to your existence beyond biological reproduction. It's the base code of your DNA. And therefore, there is no guiding star for who you are and why you're here. There's no innate value in who you are. Now, you can try and make one up for yourself. You can try and make yourself happy. But given the struggles of life, given the way that the details play out, many philosophers who think from a secular point of view end up being nihilists and going down a very, very dark path. Which is why when Jesus comes and he illuminates the Christian story, that if it's true, you are not a cosmic accident, but are the intentional creation of a creator, of a heavenly father, who wanted you to exist, who fashioned you in your mother's womb like an artwork, who has put in you unique creative capacities for you to be able to do good works here in the world, and who loves you despite all of the dark things you may have done in secret or in the prison of your own thought world. He loves you. You are intended. And what is it that benchmarks your value? Well, like any painting, any masterpiece, if you saw a painting by Dan Patterson, that is worthless. <laughs> I'd actually pay you to be able to take it away from any art installation. But if you saw an original by Rembrandt or Van Gogh, these things are priceless. Why? Because the skill of the artist is what sets the value of the painting. Well, think of the skill of the creator of this entire cosmos. That is a benchmark for your value. And when it comes to the Christian story, another way of discerning our value is, well, what is someone willing to pay for us? And according to the Christian story, according to the Gospels, God was willing to pay with his life. God the Son, incarnate in Jesus, the invisible God made visible, willingly gave up his life, allowed his blood to be poured out, to be able to purchase you so that you can be part of God's family, be to set you free from the things that keep you captive, so that you can have eternal life. That God created you as a masterpiece, that he is willing to purchase your life at a ransom price with his own. These are two inestimable value sets for who you are. And that is a message that helps to make sense of being made in God's image, why we have inalienable rights, inalienable dignity, inalienable value. Every person, irrespective of creed or color or country, 
everyone has this baseline value. And I think that is good news to a world torn apart by inequity and by tribalism. It's something that helps to change that culture. Or let's take purpose. Why are you here? According to the secular story, your life has no ultimate purpose. But according to the Christian story, you are here to know and be known by God, to love God with all your being, to love others with who you are, and then to contribute something to God's world. What an awesome world of invitation that helps set course for your life of discovery. How has God wired me with my unique gifts to do good in the particular place that he's placed me? It sets you on a journey of self-discovery as to what you can contribute to the world. Or what about the struggle with how do we fix what's wrong with us? Every philosophy, whether it's a secular or religious one, tries to make sense of what's wrong with us. But yet the Christian story offers a unique diagnosis. It's not that there's just structures and systems out there that are broken and need to be fixed. It's that there's something broken deep within us. The heart of the human problem is actually the problem with the human heart. And that we need to be both forgiven for what we've done, but also changed to become the kind of people God intended us to be. And the good news of the Christian story is that Jesus has done everything necessary to make that possible. That by his death, he opens up the way of forgiveness, that he has paid justice in our place so that evil really is held to account, but that we don't have to do that. He does it for us. But he also opens up the door through his resurrection that we can be changed by God's power, his presence coming to dwell in our lives that God can make us new from the inside out to help us become again the kind of people that we are intended to be. That it's something we can't do on our own, but something that God does within us to help us become again people who love God and love others and contribute who we are self-sacrificially for the good of the world. See, there are so many little avenues in which Jesus is good news. Let me share one final one that melted my own skepticism. And it's in the area of suffering. If God does not exist and the Christian story isn't true, then there is nothing wrong with the world right now. This is the way that things have always been. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Decay is built in to the system. And human beings have always been susceptible to death and decay, disorder and disease in the ways that we see right now. It's only if the Christian story is true that we can meaningfully protest against the way that things are. That this is not how things should be. That there is an ideal vision of what humans are meant to be a good and therefore we can call out evil wherever we see it and stand against it. And suffering, sickness, death, disease, these are not the way that God intended us to live here. But these are a symptom of the deeper sin sickness now that infects all of humanity. And so what is God's response? It doesn't just offer an explanation in the scriptures as to what's wrong. But what is God's response? Well, in Jesus we see God weeping over the grief of death. We see God weeping over the division in humanity as Jesus wept over a divided Jerusalem that refused to come to him. We see God extending visions of hope that one day suffering will be overthrown. That At the great resurrection, God will wipe away not only our tears from the pain and suffering of this life, but for whoever believes in him, whoever passes into God's future world, That's going to be a place of no more sickness or death or crying or mourning or pain anymore. All of these symptoms are going to pass away when Jesus sets everything right. But he's also a God who comes and suffers alongside of us. He's a God who says, I'm not going to leave you as you are, leave you alone in the pain, but I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to show you how much I love you by being willing to suffer in our place. 
The Christian story describes that Jesus suffered excruciating pain on the cross, quite literally excrucis from the cross in Latin. Jesus was willing, as a revelation of how God feels towards us, to stand in as our substitute and to suffer and die a brutal death in order to say, at the very least, I'm with you. In order to say, at the very least, your suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Your suffering, despite how hard it is, that God was willing to suffer for us is an absolute declaration, a demonstration of his love for us. So much so that Jesus bears the scars of that suffering for all eternity as a reminder of what God was willing to do to show his love, his goodness, his intentions towards us. He suffered for us. You see, when I was reading through these gospel stories, I saw Jesus' response as good news. That suffering is not something I just have to learn to deal with because one day it will be dealt with. And that I could lean into Jesus and trust that even while I'm going through hardship, he can still bring something out of it. That he's big enough and good enough to co-opt my suffering to help serve some meaningful purpose. God really is good. The Christian story really is good news. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christian story, if you're unfamiliar with it, is essentially this that you are loved despite leaving God's home and turning your back on him, that you can be saved despite all of your sin, that you can be forgiven despite all of your failures, that God sees you to the depths and yet he loves you to the skies and he invites you to experience a new relationship with him. And all it takes is for you to respond to Jesus' invitation to believe in and follow him. It's that step of faith, of following the evidence that it's true and following the reality that it's good to be able to put your trust in Jesus as a person. And that that's a step that you can take right now if you want to. What compelled me as I read through the Christian story is that Jesus is God's answer to our every heart cry. Whether it's our questions on identity, meaning, value, how we should live, our future, our hopes, Jesus is God's answer to our every heart heart cry. And you're invited not only to make sense of your life in light of him today, but actually to put your faith and your hope in him, to be able to experience God personally and to walk with him. And even in the midst of that relationship, to continue to ask all your questions like I have, but all of a sudden they come from a different place. You've seen enough, you know enough to trust. Now you're just trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together. And there might be someone watching this right now who wants to make that step You've heard enough of the Christian story. You've asked enough of your questions. You haven't got all the answers and in life you never will. But you know that you want to take that step now of putting your hope and your trust in Jesus. And if that's you today, then I actually just want to offer an opportunity for you to respond. God sees your heart. He knows your thoughts. He's looking into the quietness of your own home or park right now, wherever you're watching this from. You can make a response just by praying along with me in the quietness of your own heart. If you want to make that step of trusting in Jesus, then just bow your head and pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that in this world you have not left yourself without testimony, that we can bring all of our hardest questions and struggles in life to you, that you're big enough to take that. But we thank you that you want us to know you, that you haven't just left evidence so we can have arbitrary beliefs, but that you've left these breadcrumbs so that we can find you as we seek after you knowing that you're seeking after us in return. And for anyone who's watching this right now and wants to make that step of 
beginning a relationship with you, of putting their trust in Jesus, of finding forgiveness for their past and hope for their future, a transformed life in his power. Would you help them now to give all of their past, present and future to you? We're sorry for the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. We're thankful for what you did for us through Jesus at the cross to suffer and die for our evil and to rise again from the dead, to overthrow our greatest enemy of death. And we want to ask right now that you would fill us with your presence, your Holy Spirit, to change us from within. And we say thank you in Jesus' name.